Let me also just take a moment and just kind of reiterate, seriously, the, the level of thanks that we all should have, especially in this country, for the veterans and all of you that have served sacrificially so that we can all enjoy a better life. A, a day of thanks is not enough. Um, I'm, I'm thankful there, you know, there was a day, there was a time, a season in our country's history when I was younger when the Vietnam War was going on where this country didn't honor those men and women so much at that time, but I think we've come a long way. And um, as, just as Christian people, we should always be thankful, especially for all things, but for those special people who serve and sacrifice and, and provide us the ability to enjoy the things that we enjoy, and so we truly are, we're truly thankful for that, and so this weekend I hope all of you and your families help your kids to recognize what an important time this is. Um, I do want to thank everybody who's prayed for me. I, I've, I've really, I really got a bad time of it this last month, and um, I'm, I'm glad to be back, but let me just say in, in light of being thankful for those that serve us, aren't you truly thankful? We are a blessed church. We have an amazing staff that jump in and do whatever it is they need to do. And I am super thankful. I haven't been in this pulpit for four weeks. Um, and so Matt and Troy jumped in, amazing job. Last Sunday, if you didn't know, I was actually down in Alabama with the church that ordained and sent me out as a missionary because my pastor from that church uh, finally retired and they had a retirement celebration. And so I was asked to give a brief testimony there for about 10 minutes, and so I got to test my voice for 10 minutes worth, and uh, we'll, see how, we'll, we'll see how this goes today as we get into, in, we get into the scriptures. But uh, here we are. We're ready to get back to work. Y'all ready to get back to work? Yeah, All right, open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 14. That's where we are at. And the series, as you see, it's called Prime Numbers, and it's been a while for me anyway, and, and I, I do want to just remind everybody that the, the practical theme of the story of the nation of Israel going through the wilderness is to learn to trust God in the midst of trials. Uh, that's what the wilderness is all about. And that's what we're learning as we come through this series. I want you to remember that the nation of Israel as a body of people is called the Son of God in Exodus chapter 4. And as a result, represents each and every one of us as sons and daughters of God, as children of God in Jesus Christ. And so the history and the story that Israel went through as they were in bondage to the world system in Egypt and were saved by the blood of the Lamb and were brought through a baptism in the Red Sea and then led into the wilderness while they're on their way to a place called Canaan, the Promised Land, this time of the wilderness is the time of testing. Uh, they were in there for 40 years, and 40 is the number of testing, and they, they were being brought through difficult times and challenging times because the Lord knows that we need those times in our lives. We need to be challenged and to be tested so that we can prove and exercise our faith and show them that we're willing to follow Him regardless of what is in front of us. So today, chapter 14 continues the story from last week in chapter 13. And chapter 13, of all the chapters and numbers, arguably could be one of the most important, certainly the most pivotal. Because in chapter number 13, as they're working their way through the wilderness, they find themselves at an area called Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. And it's on the southern border 
of Canaan and the promised land. And since they were close to the promised land, they were given the instruction, let's send 12 spies over and let them go and spy out the land and take a look and see what it's all about. And so you know the story, and we heard it last week, that 12 went in and 10 of them came back fearful and afraid and unbelieving and wanting to run and to turn back. But two of them stood and said, God can do this, let's do it. And so that event really does set the stage because as a result of that event, right, we're going to come into some of the results and consequences today in chapter 14, which then lays out what becomes the new normal for them for the rest of the book of Numbers. So chapter 13 is a pivotal event, sending those spies in. And, and the main reason why is because when God called them out of Egypt, he didn't just call them out of Egypt. He called them out so that they could go in. He called them out so that they could go in to Canaan. And this was the big promise that God had given them. And in chapter 13, that was the time that they did that. They should have been excited about it. They should have all been excited saying, God gave us this big promise. But we saw last week that that wasn't the response of the majority. They were filled with fear. They walked by sight, not by faith. And we saw at the end of chapter number 13 and verse 32 that because of their fear, it says they brought up an evil report of the land. Actually, that's not true. It was a great land. It was a wonderful land. It flowed with milk and honey. The fruit were giant-sized fruit. They had all kind of wonderful things in the land, but there was also giants in the land. And they got afraid. And they turned. I'm going to ask you some questions as we consider this continuing today. What happens when people try to undermine your faith by bringing a false report? What do you do when it seems like everybody around you is living in fear and unbelief? What about it when the majority all agrees together, but their agreement is contrary to God's word? What would you do if you were in such a situation? Because, friends, I want you to know that you're in such a situation. We live in a time right now where there's so much of a, a downplayed spiritual culture. The overwhelming majority of people who would call themselves children of God live in fear and won't believe God when it gets tough. Their reaction to this input was discouragement. And so I want to bring to your attention a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 1. This chapter is, of Deuteronomy chapter 1 is, is really Moses recounting the story of Israel for the first several chapters before they are about to finally enter into the promised land at the end of that 40 years. And in verse number 28 it says this, referring to this very event of Numbers 13 and 14. It says, Whither shall we go up? Our brethren, noticed, have discouraged our heart, saying, The people is greater and taller than we, the cities are great and walled up to heaven, and moreover we have seen the sons of the Anakims there. I want you to remember that the word discourage literally means to remove courage. So they were fearful. Their courage was removed. Our brethren have removed our courage, they said. And so as we get into Numbers chapter 14, we're going to see right away three steps of spiritual discouragement. 
And so if you'll look with me in Numbers 14, I'm going to read little by little some of these verses. It's a long chapter. We're going to go through it all eventually. But the first step we see of spiritual discouragement is to bemoan, to bemoan. And that's found in verse number one. All the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night as a result of hearing this testimony. So what happened is they wept, they cried, they got emotional. And frequently, when you get emotional, you get irrational. And as a result of this emotion, which leads to this irrationality, we come to the second step after bemoan, and that's to blame. They begin to blame. So in Numbers chapter 14 and verse number 2, it says, And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. Well, we've seen that before. If you compare the, the parallel back in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 27, it says this, And ye murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. That's how fearful they had become. That's how discouraged they had become. They became very emotional, and they began to blame. They blamed Moses. They blamed Aaron. Oh, and they blamed God. Well, that's just like Adam in the garden. Remember that story? So when Adam finally sins in the garden, he was fearful because he knew that he sinned and he didn't want to face God after his sin. And then when God finally confronts him and calls him out on it, and he answers by saying, well, Lord, you know, the woman that thou gavest me, she gave me to eat. So he blames the woman. Oh, he blames God who gave the woman to him because, well, this is what men do when we find ourselves in a tough situation. We want to Pass the buck. We want to blame others. It's just a step of spiritual discouragement to be moan and to blame. And then finally, number three, to bargain. They begin to bargain. And we start where we left off. And it says, And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, and let us return unto Egypt. They, they start making some deals. They start thinking, hey, let's, let's work out a better plan. It would be better for us to stay back in Egypt. It would be better for us to die here in the desert than to cross over there and get slaughtered by those guys. I got an idea. Forget Moses. Let's pick us a new leader who will take us where we want to go. You see, they're, they're a bit of a panic here, aren't they? And they're faced with the natural response of fight or flight. But when you're discouraged, you have no courage. There's only flight. That's all that's left. They say, hey, I got an idea. Let's go back. Anything would be better than doing what God said going into Canaan where those giants are. I mean, after all, we've got families to think about. We can't subject our children to such a thing. And they do just what people do today. They make excuses, they blame others, and they start to figure out another plan. They'll even use their family as the reason why. Well, God says that's rebellion. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 26, it says, 
notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. That's a very carnal, short-sighted response. And while we may never find ourselves in such a dramatic scene, literally anyway, as this, I do think that the elements of this story are true all around us today. We live in such a day and a time today where most people walk by sight. Laodicea is the church that is said to be blind, meaning spiritually blind. They're living according to their physical sight and senses rather than their spiritual sight and senses. And people react in fear of the life circumstances. We face the giants of political division and moral decay and financial instability, things that threaten our safety and way of life. And instead of believing God, many today, they, well, they just fear and they get discouraged and they refuse to believe God. So as we continue this story in chapter 14 today, there's a lot going on. But I want you to see, as I've given the title to the message, the biblical response to spiritual discouragement. Because I believe there are some very important things that are clear and positive responses to such a situation. And so before we get into it, and there's a lot to see today, let me just go to the Lord and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do have a lot to cover, and I do pray that your Spirit would guide us in our study. I do pray that you will help us to see the parallels from this story to our lives today. I do pray that you would grant us courage to stand, courage to believe you when it's hard. And I do pray that you would show us specifically how to respond biblically in accordance with what you are going to share with us today. We ask these things and thank you in advance in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first biblical response that we're going to see is the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word of God. And I'm going to read for you, starting in verse number 6. We'll go down to about verse 12. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding excuse me, good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the Glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. So upon hearing the reaction of all the people of discouragement, Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies that went in, are grieved. It says in verse 6 that they rent their clothes and they stand up to speak to the people on behalf of the Lord, which is what spiritual leaders do. In fact, if you go back to chapter 13 and verse number 2, you'll find that all of the 12 spies represented a leader 
from each of the 12 tribes. So these men are proven leaders, and they're men of faith. And I want to remind you of something as we get into this, because in a time of murmuring, which is what's going on here, God needs faithful men who will focus on his word. That's what we see in Acts chapter 6 from the church in Jerusalem. Let me read you the first four verses. And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. At such a time when there's dissension in the ranks, at such a time when people are all upset, at such a time when people are murmuring and backbiting, that's not the time to leave the ministry of the word of God. In fact, it's the exact thing that God needs people to do. So that's what we see Joshua and Caleb doing in the letter A in your notes, the declaration. What they are doing is biblical preaching. Joshua and Caleb are standing for truth. They confront human wisdom with godly wisdom. They boldly declare to God's children the other side of the story. They let them know that there's another viewpoint so that the children can eventually make better choices in their life by faith, trusting what God said. And they do this because they know the principle of Hebrews 11:6 that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible. So what exactly did they do? Well, they did what any good preacher ought to do. They restate God's truth. That's what they did. They took what God said and they reminded the people of what God had said. And in verse number 7, it says, They spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The, the land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. In direct contradiction to what was said back in chapter 13 and verse 32 by the 10, it's an evil, it's an evil land, it's terrible, it eats people up. They said, no, 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 no. No, it's an exceeding good land. Land, And this is the exact thing that God had been telling them all along, all the way back since Exodus chapter 3, when they were still slaves in Egypt, in verse number 8, and he said, I'm going to pull you out of here, I'm going to get you out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring you into an exceeding good land, a land that flows with milk and honey. And Joshua and Caleb were eyewitnesses, they were there, they saw it, they experienced it, and they said, no, 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 that's an evil report. The land is an exceeding good land. They just restated what God said. And then they reaffirmed God's promise. And this is what God's people need in a time of crisis. They need to be reaffirmed in what God promises. And it goes on in verse number 8 and it says, He will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. He said, not only is it a good land, not only did God say that it is, and it is. He also said he will do it. He will bring it to pass. He will bring us in. He will give it to us. And like in any good sermon, there had to be practical, personal application. 
And so in this situation, this particular promise, well, it's conditional. It's conditioned upon the response of God's people. In verse 8 it says, If the Lord delight in us, then he'll bring us into the land. If the Lord delight in us. And in verse 9 it says, Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. Although, as though that's another condition. If you won't rebel, if you won't fear, if the Lord delights in you, we got this thing down. It's a done deal. He's already said that he's going to do it. So they're challenging God's people to just hear God's word and believe God's word and take steps. But we need to understand, according to the scripture, in whom does the Lord delight? Because if the Lord delight in us, this is going to happen. Well, how do we get our lives in such a situation where we can say, the Lord delights in me? Well, there's several things to take into consideration. Jeremiah 9, 24, the Lord delights in righteousness. Amen. You want to glory in something? You need to glory in the fact that God delights in loving kindness and judgment and righteousness. Those are the things that the Lord delights in. The Lord delights in things that are right. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, that, that famous statement with, with King Saul as he was blowing it, right? And it comes back, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, your, your religious rituals and good deeds that you think you do? Does he have such a great delight in those things as he does in just simply obeying the voice of the Lord. All the Lord's really interested in is that you just hear Him and obey Him. Hear His word. Do what He asks you to do. Psalm 37, verse 23, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. When that happens, He delights in His way. The Lord delights in the way of the good man whose steps are ordered, he's obedient to the word of God. His life is righteous before the Lord. Proverbs 11 and verse number 20, they that are of a froward heart are abomination to the Lord, but such as are upright in their way are his delight. They're his delight. So in whom does the Lord delight? He delights in people who believe his word. Oh, and actually do it. They believe it's to the point where they actually get busy and do it. And in this case, it's God's delight to bring his excellent children into an excellent land. 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 20, David, he brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me. Why? Because he delighted in me. That's why he delivered me. And that's what the children of Israel needed to understand. He, they needed to understand that God would deliver them. But there's a prerequisite. He needs to delight in you. He needs to be excited about what he sees when he looks down at your life. Friends, what does God see when he looks down at your life? What does he see when he looks down and he sees you facing your giants in your world? What does he see when he sees you <coughs> excuse me, surrounded by people? who are trying to rob you of your faith. And it's hard, and it's a challenge. I get it. 
Can he delight in you? Is your life righteous? Is your life faithful? Are you obeying God's voice? Are your steps ordered by his word? A good sermon always has an admonition to act. He's saying, look, believe me. Quit worrying about the circumstances. Quit worrying about the giants. It says in verse number 9, a unique little phrase, for they are bread for us. They are bread for us. What does that exactly mean? Well, it's followed by a colon, which means what comes next further defines what he means. It says their defense has departed from them. In other words, they are bread for us. If we go in in faith, we're going to eat them up. We're going to eat them up. They have no defense. Fear them not. But not unlike in Laodicea, people just wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. They didn't care. So in verse 10, all the congregation bade stone them with stones. How frustrating. I mean, put yourself in Joshua's shoes. Put yourself in Caleb's shoes. Here you are. You have seen what they have seen. You have been where they have been. But you walk with the Lord, and you know his word, and you understand his promises, and you are full of faith, and you admonish them to believe God, to know that God has promised victory, and to know that the people are falling, but needlessly falling. And when you tell them of the victory promised, they refuse to obey. Their response is, let's just kill these guys and get them out of here. Let's eliminate any voice that is not saying what we want to hear. That's what they're saying. Let's eliminate them. Well, that was a problem. Because God refers to such an act, he calls it a provocation. He calls it a temptation against him. And referring to this very event in the New Testament book of Hebrews, in chapter number 3, we read, starting in verse number 8, Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, referring to this very time, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And if we jump down to verse 16, it says, For some, when they had heard, did provoke. That's who we're talking about. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that sinned and whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And going to chapter 4, <clears throat> let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. 
So they wouldn't believe God. They feared and they provoked God. And it says in Hebrews 4, 2, that God sent them the gospel. Well, it's not the gospel of the grace of God. Believe on Jesus Christ and thou shalt be. That's not the gospel. The word gospel just means good news. And God sent them good news. They could defeat the enemies in the land. You could say that it's the gospel of armed military conquest. But for them at that time and where they were at, let me just tell you, that was good news. That was good news. Now, obviously, there's two opposing opinions here. You have all the people, and you've got these preachers. <laughs> that happens. You have human wisdom, and you have God's wisdom. And the ministry of the Word, well, it includes not only a declaration of good news, it also includes consequences for not believing it. So that's letter B in your outline, and that's the disinheritance. The disinheritance. Verses 11 and 12. The Lord said, notice, unto Moses. God's done talking to them. How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them, there it is, and I will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Now maybe if you've been with us, you'll remember back in chapter number 12 where it says Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman who he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And then that little phrase at the end of verse 2 that ought to sober us up real quick. And the Lord heard it. And the Lord heard it. That phrase keeps popping up when God's people murmur and complain. And the Lord heard it. Well, the Lord certainly heard what was being said in this case as well. So the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, basically, since the people provoke me and since they're not willing to believe me, here's my judgment. I'm going to kill them all, disinherit them all, and give you a whole new nation. We'll start over from scratch. That's what God said. Thus saith the word of God. God's obviously angry. We go to that parallel passage in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and in verse 34 and 5. It says, And the Lord heard, there it is, the Lord heard it. And the Lord heard the voice of your words and was wroth. And swear, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land, which I swear to give unto your fathers. Now the story of Numbers 14 is not over. We've still got a good bit to cover. But these of this category never saw the fulfillment and the realization of entering the promised land. Because entering the promised land, that was their inheritance. Their inheritance was a physical land grant that they would have their own land and their own place and they would live in peace and safety and God would bless them and they would live a life to the fulfillment of abundance in all the various ways. That was their inheritance. And God said, I'm going to disinherit them because of their unbelief. Well, what does that mean to us? Well, for us, our inheritance is our earned reward of service. Our inheritance, biblically speaking, church, 
is not eternal life. Eternal life is not an inheritance. Eternal life is a gift. It's a free gift. And if we who have received the free gift and are now children of God bought by the blood of the Lamb, if we walk by sight, if we live in fear, if we refuse to trust God at His word, I'll tell you what doesn't happen. We don't lose our salvation. Praise the Lord. We don't lose our salvation, but I'm going to tell you what will happen. You'll lose your rewards. You will be disinherited. You will be disinherited. Notice how the New Testament defines it. Colossians 3, 23 and 4. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive, here it is, the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. The inheritance is always an earned reward of how you have lived your life after salvation. Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. We're talking to Christians here. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's not saying that people who are saved can't behave that way. They shouldn't. But people who are saved can find themselves behaving that way, and what's going to happen is they will be disinherited. They will find themselves saved yet so as by fire, as all of their works are wood, hay, and stubble. So we find at the end of the entire Bible something that confuses some people if they don't understand how to read and define the words. Revelation twenty-two nineteen. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Please notice that verse 19 does not say God shall take his name out of the book of life. It says it shall take his part. Learn to read. Part is inheritance. He will take your inheritance away. The inheritance is that which is imparted to you. He will take away your inheritance if you mess with his word. So the first biblical response to spiritual discouragement is the ministry of God's word. Go and tell people what God says and what God needs to do about it. The next biblical response, number two, is the ministry of prayer. And we see Moses jump in at this point. Start in verse 13, and we'll go down to verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, that's verse 11, excuse me, verse 13, And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou bringest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, and that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and thou goest before them by daytime, and a pillar of a cloud, and a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, 
and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy, as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now go back and remember Acts chapter 6, the first four verses, and the murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because the widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And they said, we need to get some godly men to help take care of that problem in the church. We refer to those as deacons, by the way. Because we need to commit ourselves to the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. Those two things are critically important, and that's what we see here. When there's trouble in the camp, the leaders must give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, which makes sense, of course, because there's only two ways out of this trouble, right? They, they've gotten themselves in trouble with the Lord now. And think about it. The only way out is either the people have to change, how are the people ever going to change? The only way they could possibly change is for us to give them God's word so they can make better choices and they can change. We talk to people on behalf of God. But when they won't listen, like the Israelites won't listen, then we talk to God on behalf of people. Because if the people won't change, well then hopefully God will change. Because if God will change, maybe there's a chance for these people. Because otherwise, he determined, I'm wiping them all out. We're starting over. So that's what Moses does here. He sees the people won't change. He's like, man, I got I to gotta go to the Lord. And listen, y'all, Moses is clearly the leader. He loves these people, like it says in Numbers eleven twelve, 12, like a nursing father. Even though, remember, Chapter 12, Moses was just the target of all their complaints, of all their attacks toward his wife, towards his authority. It would be really easy for Moses to say, yeah, go ahead. Let's do this. I could use a better crowd. No, he doesn't do it. Moses is a good parent, and he behaves like a good parent whose kids are acting up and acting foolishly. And although the kids are foolish and the kids deserve a lot worse, he loves them. And he goes to bat. He fights for the children of Israel. He fights with God. He goes before the Lord for them. Now, before we look at some of the details of this prayer, and this is a bold prayer that Moses puts forth, let me just ask you something. Do you realize the gift God has given you in spiritual shepherds? Do you realize... What benefit that does for you? I mean, what a gift. In Ephesians chapter 4, when it lists the gifts, among them are pastors and teachers. A gift to the church. What a help. What a blessing. That's why God says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. 
That's why he says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. That's why he says in Hebrews 13, 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, have sp spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. That's what Moses is for the Israelites. Even though he is ignored, even though he is blamed, even though he is attacked personally, he goes to bat for them. People need shepherds in their lives. They need them. Notice what Moses does. Moses causes God to change his mind. Moses causes God to change his mind. He talks God out of his decision to, de to destroy Israel. Now that's a tough fit if you're a Calvinist, let me just tell you. God had an eternal decree. God had spoken. And Moses talked him out of it. He, talked him, he, just, he got him to change his mind. And this isn't the first time this has happened, by the way. Remember back in Exodus chapter 32. This is the story of the golden calf. And Moses is up on the mountain and he comes down and Aaron's leading the people in a worship service and they're melting down their earrings and they make this golden calf. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. How ridiculous. Let's pick it up in verse number 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. That's an understatement. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. It's the same thing. Coming around again. He says, just get out of the way. Leave me alone, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out. I'll give you a whole new crowd. Verse 11, And Moses besought the Lord, is, the Lord is God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Moses is getting bold. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now, evil does not mean sinful. God would never have done anything sinful. Evil just means judgmentally bringing his wrath. This is not unlike Genesis 18 and the story of Abraham interceding for Sodom. Remember that? God's going to destroy all of Sodom. Lord, if there are only 50 righteous. Lord says, okay, if there's 50 righteous. Lord, if there's only 45. No, okay, 45. What? If I could just bother you one more time. If there were only 40, and Abraham gets him all the way down to 10, and wisely says, I think I better stop here. I think I'll just stop and roll with this one. Now, there wasn't even 10 righteous. But what did Abraham do? In prayer, changed God's mind. Did he not? Now, that's an amazing thought. How exactly does he do? How can anybody get God to change his mind? Well, notice, Moses reminds God of his word and asks him to act accordingly. You know that God is bound 
to act according to his word. Amen? He must act according to his word. And I have to point out to you that while judging sin and disbelief is certainly in accordance with God's word, so is forgiveness. And Moses uses the precedent set back in Exodus 32 and in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, to make a case to the Lord for forgiveness in this case. So in verse number 18 of Numbers 14, we see exactly a quote from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord is long-suffering, of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and the fourth generation. Listen, y'all, that is a powerful way to get God to act. Pray according to his word. That presupposes that you know his word. Study to show yourself approved. You pray according to his word means you pray according to his will, which is the biblical definition of praying in his name. That's what he means. So in John 14, Jesus says in verses 13 and 14, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. That doesn't mean the postage stamp of your prayer is saying, in Jesus' name, amen. That means you are praying in accordance with his will, in accordance with his word, rightly divided. If you ask anything in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Similarly, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, well, where is his will found? It's found in his word. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. So let's get full of faith, let's get full of the word of God and prayer, and let's get into this thing and start asking God to work. That's what Moses is doing. This is the way the Holy Spirit intercedes for you in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints. How? According to the will of God. According to the will of God. So what does Moses do? Moses appeals to God's mercy. Lord, forgive. You've done it before. Do it again. He appeals to God's testimony. He appeals to God's reputation among the pagan Gentile nations. He appeals to God's glory. He says, Lord, don't let there be a stain on your name and your reputation and your testimony. And God says, okay, for the sake of my glory, I'll pardon. I'll pardon. But, Moses, since we're talking about glory, Let's just, let's just visit that for a while. So that's really the rest of the chapter. Point number three, the manifestation of glory. And let's go through this fairly quickly. Start in verse 22. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, 
have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land, which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoke, see me, uh, provoke me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spake unto Moses unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation, which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which ye search the land, even forty days, each day for a year, shall ye bear your iniquities even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, and I will surely do it, unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. And the man which Moses sent to search the land, who returned and made all the congregation a murmur against him by bringing up a slander unto the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land, died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which are of the men that went to search the land, live still. Now the problem was the Israelites were obviously walking by sight. We saw that last week in chapter number 13. Okay, but God brings up in verse number 22, they also saw my glory back in Egypt and all the wonders and all the miracles and all the ways that I brought them out miraculously from under Pharaoh. I mean, you want to talk about living by sight, they saw some stuff. In fact, God reminds them that they saw some stuff, so much so that he said that he proved himself before them to the extent that they should have no problem anymore believing him going forward. Man, we don't have time. Man, I just want to camp here for a while. Listen, y'all, have you seen God work in your life? Has God done miraculous things in you? Has God changed you from darkness to light? Has God given you a new heart and a new life and a new vision and a new path? Has God given you a new walk and a whole new set of friends and a whole new future, not to mention eternal life? God's done all these things for you, and you won't believe his word today when something goes wrong? That's the scenario we're dealing with. He said, but since that time when they saw that, they've tempted me ten times already. Remember, to tempt is to provoke. And they do that by not listening to my voice. Well, and he says, well, except for Caleb, he has another spirit. What exactly does that mean? He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, another spirit means, and hath followed me fully. In other words, it's the attitude to follow God fully, not just in fair weather. So God agrees to do what Moses asked. He pardons. They don't all get slaughtered right then and there. But he also agrees to do what the Israelites asked. And the Israelites said, Would God that we rather die in this wilderness? He's like, oh yeah, okay, let's do that. We'll go with what you said. I mean, what is God's glory anyway? 
Is it not the manifestation of his person? Well, God's person, God is perfectly balanced. Psalm 85.10, mercy and truth are met together. That's the balance of God. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know where it speaks of Jesus Christ as the living word of God in John 1.14, the word was made flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a perfect balance. So the manifestation of God's glory must include both aspects. So letter A, justice is delivered. And we read all the ways. Tell the people, I'll do what they want. They prefer to die in the wilderness? Okay, they'll die in the wilderness. That's what's going to happen. They're not going to die now. They'll wander around for 40 years, but they won't make it. Can I just say, be careful how you talk to God. Can I just say, be careful what you ask for. And the Lord heard it. Be careful. He's holy. He's righteous. Oh, and he's actively involved in daily life. Verse number four has a unique statement where it says that God invokes a breach of promise. We wouldn't think of attributing that to God, right? We would say that's something we do. God made a promise to bring them all into the land, but because of their disobedience, he's like, yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to do something different. The children will make it in. A representation of this nation is going to make it in. But all y'all aren't going to make it in. A breach of promise. Justice is delivered. If God's glory is going to be manifest, there's going to be righteousness. There's going to be justice. But mercy is also extended. Thank the Lord, mercy is also extended. Verse 31, but your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, I'll have mercy on them. Them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. The children that you used as your excuse for not believing me, you said they'll never prosper in such a terrible place. Oh, they will prosper. You won't see it, but they will without you. But it's going to be a hard road for them. They're going to have to suffer here with you all for 40 years. The phrase is to bear your whoredoms. You know what that is? That's Exodus 34. That's visiting the iniquity unto the children to the third and the fourth generation. They're going to carry the weight of their parents' spiritual adultery. So God answers all the prayers. He forgives the iniquity, and then he visits the iniquity. He does both. And when the people finally hear God's response, when they're faced with God's glory, when they hear the judgment passed down, it says in verse number 39, they mourned greatly. But it was too late. It was too late now. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the verses. You can glance at them yourself if you want to. But what happens from verses 39 to 45? Israel, after the fact, after the judgment is passed down, too little, too late, they finally repent. And they say, oh, oh, I didn't know it was that bad. Okay, we'll go up and we'll fight. We'll go now. We'll go fight now. And God said, don't do it. Don't do it now. I won't go with you. 
And they're like, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to do it anyway. Listen, they've already proven they don't listen to God. So a bunch of them say, let's go up anyway. And what we find is, well, the Amalekites and the Canaanites come down and, well, they kick their tail. Now listen, we don't live in the Sinai Desert. We're not all camping out together. We're not eating miracle bread every morning. We're not walking to our new home that we've never seen before. Unless you apply those things spiritually. And then that's exactly what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. We're living in a desert. We're camping out together. We're eating miraculous bread every day. And we're walking together to our new home that we've never seen before. Facing our giants and deciding every day whether or not we will believe just what God said. You see, just like Israel, there will come a time when you can't go back. So obey God now. For us, don't wait until your judgment is declared. That's called the judgment seat of Christ. Because what's going to happen to a lot of people at the judgment seat of Christ when they see everything burned up and they see how they wasted their lives? They're going to say, oh, I'll go back and do it now. And the Lord will say, it's too late now. It's too late now. You can't go back now. Let me ask you something. God speaking to you today? I mean, is he speaking to you today? Don't wait till tomorrow. Let me go back to Hebrews chapter 3, that chapter we read earlier. Verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And in verse 15, while it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. Numbers chapter 14, that's us today, y'all. That's us today. And I don't know what giants you're facing. I don't know what fears you have in front of you. I don't know what's caused you to not trust his word. But if God has put his spiritual finger on your heart today, and he's pointing out something very clear to you today, can I just encourage you with Hebrews 3, while it is yet called today, harden not your hearts like they did. Don't wait until it's too late. Let's believe him now. Let's trust him now. Let's repent now. Let's walk with him now. Let's pray together.